Alright, hello there everyone, and welcome to the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast. We are your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. My name is Robert Winfrey, and I am your host, per usual. So if you could please, in any way, interact with the product, helps a great deal. So like, comment, subscribe, star rating, written review, whatever is applicable to your platform of choice. If you've done any and all of that, uh, sharing. Tell people about the show if you think they'd enjoy it. Be that social media, Twitter, Facebook, Reddit. Reddit kind of social media? I don't know. But if Reddit's your thing, then please go ahead and tell people about the show. I appreciate it. Uh, Anything you can do to let people know about us helps tremendously. So thank you very, very much. Alrighty, on the agenda this evening, what do we got? UFC 287 wound up being a solid card. I mean, don't get me wrong, there were some, there were ups and downs. This was not a slam dunk all the way through, but on the whole, good card. So we will review that. We will preview UFC on ESPN 44, which is coming your way next week. And then, of course, news. Which, uh, I talked last week a little bit about the rumored merger of UFC and WWE under the Endeavor banner. Well, it turns out, I recorded that, I recorded last week's episode, like, uh, technically Monday morning, it was like 2, 3 in the morning. Uh, last Sunday was, it was a thing. It was a whole thing. (laughs) But, this week... Um, that was, again, so they officially announced that on Monday. They're going through with that. It's, it's in the works. There's the bureaucracy, there's the paperwork, there's the legal examinations. There's some still, you know, bureaucratic hoops to jump through, but it seems to be that this is what's going to happen. Endeavor is going to merge WWE and UFC and then spin that entity off into a new company, which is not yet named. Uh, it will be publicly traded, and apparently the um, we know their stock initial initials. Um, everything on the market has like a you know uh, an initialization, a three-letter code or what have you. Whatever they're going to be, whatever the official name is, their stock designation is going to be TKO. So <clears throat> I might refer to it as that for the sake of ease. But now that we have some more knowledge, because I was just speculating a little bit last week. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that, and then, of course, the other news of the week, because there's news, so. That's what we got on the show tonight. Alright, I did the boilerplate, so let's jump into it, shall we? UFC 287. Uh, this came to you from the, what did they change the name to? The Kasana? Kaseya? I think it's Kaseya Center in Miami, Florida. Main event. The fourth overall fight between Israel Adesanya and Alex Pereira. They fought twice in kickboxing, once a split decision that could have gone Adesanya's way. Second time, a fight where Adesanya had his moments, very very nearly stopped Pereira, but couldn't finish the job, and then got knocked out himself. Uh, Pereira went on to great success across the... mostly in glory, but in kickboxing... Adesanya moved to MMA, had his great success. Pereira followed him to MMA, and in their most recent fight, 
Pereira was losing the fight, not badly. Uh, he won, I think it was the second round. But he was down three rounds to one going into the fifth, and he was doing okay in the fifth. But he was going to lose a decision and managed to rally Heard Adesanya via some close quarter strikes, got the stoppage, and we got an immediate rematch, which I somewhat be- I bemoaned the state of immediate rematches last week, not this fight in particular. And I'm going to talk more about bemo- I'm going to bemoan more immediate rematches a little bit later, but we'll leave that alone for the moment. And in this fight, main event, he finally does it. Israel Adesanya finally breaks the gets the monkey off of his back. He stops Alex Pereira via knockout punches 421 of the second. Um, heck of a performance from Adesanya. The first round was a lot of kickboxing. Shouldn't be too surprising given these two guys, but hard round to score. I Ed, I gave it to Pereira, but you could go the other way. It was a, it was a close round. Uh, second round, Pereira gets uh, Adesanya against the fence, which he'd been struggling to do a little bit in this fight, but he thinks Adesanya's hurt. And I'm not saying he, that he wasn't, you know, in a less than ideal position, but I think he, Adesanya oversells how hurt he is, and that induces kind of Pereira looking to finish. So he gets close. He throws a knee, he digs some body shots, he's looking to tee off. Adesanya's not as hurt as he looked. And he's able to fire back in the pocket. Cracks Pereira with a right hand. Hits him with it again that drops him. One follow-up hammer fist that really puts him out. Just completely closes the show. Um, Technically, some interesting stuff here. Let me start with Pereira because you can't talk about these things independently too much, but I'm going to try. Pereira's changes here were fairly interesting. He wasn't as pressure-oriented. I think that's mostly because of what Adesanya did. I don't think... I don't think Pereira came into this fight with the game plan of being less of a pressure fighter. I think Adesanya did things that complicated the issue. Uh, Pereira was throwing more leg kicks. He landed some in the first fight, but he did. A, he was more about checking them in the first fight. I'm, when I say first, I mean the first MMA fight, so that's the vernacular I'm going to use. Please leave it alone. Um, he was more about checking them than landing them necessarily. This one, he was throwing them a lot more. And it it changed his offense a bit. It changed the spacing a bit. Um, he didn't target the head nearly as much as he did in their first fight. And if you watch their first fight, he his jab is kind of a constant... He and Izzy both in their first fight, their jabs were problems for the other guy for different reasons. Adesanya uses kind of a stickier jab. He'll throw the jab, and instead of retracting it right away, he kind of leaves it there to measure and check, and then comes with the right. In fact, that's what hurts Pereira at the end of the first round of their MMA fight. And it's similar to what works here, but different. 
um, for a couple of reasons, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, Pereira's jab. Pereira's jab is more from the, like, George Foreman school of jabbing. <laughs> um, uh, so I stole that from Teddy Atlas because I saw him reference it, and I think it's accurate. If you never watched young George Foreman, okay, if all you know of George Foreman is the guy who came back, like, in his 40s, um, and was kind of everyone's, you know, uncle or grandpa. I mean, he was only 40, so he wasn't really a grandpa, but, you know, that's old in fighting terms. But if you only knew George Foreman as kind of the happy-go-lucky guy, um, he was a completely different beast in his first run to the title. I mean, completely different. And his jab was... Uh, I think one of the most common descriptors was it was like a telephone pole. Like, you just walked into that and just... You weren't going anywhere. It was thudding. It was in your face. There's a lot of different styles of jabs. Um, Foreman subscribed to the pounding a railroad spike into something philosophy. Some guys snap, some guys cut. Again, different kinds of jabs. Foreman, Foreman was a pounding jabber, like just boom, boom. Pereira's jab is in that school of thought. Uh, just concussive force, like you're, again, like you're, uh, the old analogy was hammering a railroad spike, right? I would use that. But that's what he's doing, just boom. And he didn't get to use it as much this fight. Now, some of that's because it ended faster. Things didn't have a chance to develop, but a lot of that was also a different game plan from Adesanya. Uh, so Pereira's head strikes were a lot more limited. Which I think played a factor. Like, he's a dangerous guy. And if he's not really able to land to your head, it's it's a limiting factor for him. Um, as for Adesanya, a few interesting things. Uh, his stance switching was... It was still there, but he did it less... How do I say this? It was a bit more obvious when he was in which which mode he was in, because he fights differently out of each stance, right? Which is fine. You, just, you know, have to be aware of different weapons, and the fact that he can use both of them is what makes him dangerous, partially. But here he was... Um, he did more out of the southpaw than orthodox, I think, if we went by time. And part of that was because he ate some pretty gnarly calf kicks from Pereira uh, when they were... Orthodox, when they were orthodox to orthodox, because Pereira doesn't switch his stance a whole lot. But I think the other reason Adesanya spent a lot of time southpaw was a change in philosophy. Um, he didn't throw a lot of calf kicks here. Normally, he's pretty active with those. Pereira just knew how to deal with them in their first fight, and it really threw off Adesanya. I mean, similar thing, very different applications, but similar thing when he fought Jan Blahovich. Uh... Blahovich was ready to deal with the calf kicks and not having those to build off of kind of set Izzy's game back and opened up different things for Blahovich to use. Uh, here, Adesanya did not throw a lot of calf kicks. His, If he threw leg kicks, they were more to the thigh. Which again, has fallen a little bit out of favor in MMA. It's not as quickly damaging as the calf kick. And I think that's part of the reason. But 
You also check the calf kick and the thigh kick via different mechanisms. The goal is the same. The goal is to get something uh, very bony of yours in the way of their shin so that their shin hits your knee. Uh, Something similar. I mean, there was a thing in MMA for a long time, especially if you were, if you watched coming up like I did way back when I did. Guys would, to check leg kicks, just lift their legs straight up. That doesn't actually work. To check a leg kick, you have to raise and then turn out because you want their shin to impact, again, around your knee or into your shin because that sucks. And it stops them from hitting the thigh. If all you do is pick your leg straight up, if the angle's really bad, that might work, but most of the time that kick still just goes through and hits the damaged area. But Adesanya targeted either the thigh or the body. He threw a lot of body kicks here. He doesn't normally. I think most of the time it's a it's a takedown consideration. Um, body kicks are very effective weapons, but they're the most likely kick to get you taken down. You know, it's very hard to take someone down off a calf kick. You can't reach down for it and timing them's hard. And if someone throws a really hard one and you push forward and all your weight's on your lead leg, you can get it cut out from under you. You can't, you're not really at risk of getting taken down by head kicks. When you throw head kicks, again, not impossible, but not really. You need two hands to block. It's hard to catch it when it's up there. Like, But body kicks get caught fairly frequently. And I think Adesanya, in, a lo- in most of his UFC fights, he's been worried about being taken down. It's a fair uh, tactical observation. Pereira was never going to take him down, so that opened up this weapon that he hasn't used a whole lot lately. And he threw some nice body kicks. Uh, he threw some decent head kicks off of that. There were a couple of other, I think, key tactical adjustments for Adesanya. One, he stayed off the fence a lot more. Um, Pereira got him to the cage a lot in their first fight, not as much here. Second, the mechanism by which he would try to disengage. Normally, he does a lot of, you know, movement, gets you to overcommit on a shot, and then he exits on an angle. A lot less eager to exit here, a little bit more willing to trade in the pocket with Pereira, which is very dangerous, but also wound up being the reason he won. So uh, a different tactical adjustment there. And just a kind of a smart read at near the end. Again, he gets hit with a couple of leg kicks <clears throat> that I'm sure did not feel good. But he reacts like I think they hurt more than they did. And he backs himself into the fence and he gets a bit stationary. And this, again, gets Pereira to get close and start swinging, looking for a finish. And if Adesanya's hurt, then this is what you should do. If he's not really hurt, what you're doing is opening yourself up for counters. Adesanya's a very good counter-striker, and we only think of that for some reason at distance. Um, Adesanya in the pocket is very good. He's exceptional. Go back and watch how he stops Robert Whitaker the first time. He gives Whitaker a mountain of problems by fighting him in the pocket. Where does he hurt Paulo Costa before he stops him? In the pocket. People actually avoid fighting him there. 
he got Pereira to stand there and try to trade with him there. And it's not that Pereira didn't have some success when he was throwing, but prolonged exchanges there didn't, they weren't his best friend, man. And Adesanya threw with him, cracked him, dropped him, and finished him. Uh, really good stuff from Adesanya in that respect. Uh, what else did I have here? Technically, at least. Um, it, it was a good little fight as far as that goes. Like this, this wound up being a major moment. I think the fight up until that point, it was good. But... These guys have fought a lot, and they were both kind of willing to spend the first round setting things up, getting a feel for each other. What are each of us going to do? Oh, right, the other thing, technically. Um, Adesanya was a lot more aggressive in this fight. Again, he's not worried about takedowns. Part of the reason you measure your forward pressure is if you're too reckless and too predictable with it, it's not that hard. You're kind of feeding your hips towards the guy who might want to take you down. So measuring distance and timing and everything becomes very, very important. He's not worried about that with Pereira. Pereira's not going to shoot a double leg on him. So he's throwing body kicks, and he's pressing forward. And Pereira off the back foot, not quite the same monster he is going forward. Still very dangerous, and I certainly don't mean to say that all you have to do is walk him down. Like, good luck, man. Like, that's going to end badly for you a large part of the time. I mean, Sean Strickland tried to just walk into him, and that ended very badly. But Adesanya being more of the aggressor and never letting Pereira kind of sustain forward momentum, it changed the dynamic a little bit. And I think in a big way. I mean, when you're dealing with... Um, this is true of boxing in general because everything is so refined. But this is true of MMA in this context. When you're dealing with guys this good that are evenly matched in a lot of respects, the small adjustments can have big... can lead to very big differences in results. And that worked out for... Uh, Adesanya here. Um, he was quite happy. You can expect. Um, dude, he... He beat his boogeyman. I mean... <laughs> think about this for just a second. These two guys first fought in April of 2016. Right? That's when Pereira wins a decision. It's a little bit controversial. You can find the fight online and judge for yourself. Um... Their second fight was 2017. Uh, they don't fight again, but that... So, Izzy being 0-2 against this guy in kickboxing is kind of there. It's not... He's got other losses. You know, it's not... It's not this, you know... Um, I say this, like... It's not a specter that just strictly haunts over everything he does. But then Pereira leaves kickboxing and comes to the UFC. And because he has history with Adesanya, he gets to cut the line. Um, somebody mentioned that on Twitter. Like, Pereira got to be where he was so quickly because of Adesanya. And people got, again, a little bit annoyed by that, but it's true. If Robert Whitaker is the champion instead of Adesanya for whatever reason, like, 
if we hop to an alternate dimension where Pereira's debuted in the UFC, Izzy's gone up to 205, so he beat Jan Blahovich, right? Just hypothetically. If he stayed at 205 and dropped the middleweight belt, I think Whitaker wins it. I don't think that's a big leap in logic. Like, Pereira doesn't get hot-shotted up the division to fight Robert Whitaker. He got hot-shotted up because he had history with Adesanya, who'd already kind of cleaned it out. The circumstances allowed for that. And that's not a knock on Pereira to say that cir- the, the circumstances he found himself in were those. Like, he didn't control that. He just capitalized on it. And again, there's nothing, that's not a knock on him. You know, your circumstances are what they are. Some of that is, al- is outside your control. You know, I mean, same thing, like, if Adesanya loses that second fight with Whitaker, which, very close fight. That might not have gone his way. If Whitaker wins that fight, again, we're not hot-shotting. Pereira doesn't get a title shot off of beating uh, Sean Strickland. That's not, And I'm not saying Sean Strickland sucks. He's a very good fighter. I'm saying most of the time, beating him is not going to get you a title shot unless other things are in play. They were in play for Pereira. But, again, go back to, like, again, first fight, 2016. For seven years, almost, this guy has kind of had Izzy's number. He beats him in kickboxing twice, including knocking him out. He follows Adesanya to MMA and knocks him out again. Well, stops him again. It wasn't a clean knockout, but stops him. No arguing the stoppage. At least I didn't. He's just this boogeyman that is suddenly upended everything that Adesanya... Suddenly, everything Adesanya's done, as great as it was, is being colored by this, yeah, but there was this guy. It was this guy that had your number. I mean, when Adesanya... Adesanya's a weird guy. His... His public speaking, his persona, his personality, or his persona, again, depending on how much you think is fabricated, it's not for everybody, and it annoys some people. And fair play, like he's he's out there enough that he's going to be polarizing. And I'm not passing judgment on him or how you feel about him, but the guy does kind of wear his heart on his sleeve. He is he's just himself, and when he said. It should have been more telling than it was, I think. I think a lot of people kind of wrote this off as just a line, because MMA is full of just lines. And it's not that Adesanya hasn't delivered a few of his that are just lines either. Like, I understand some of this is hindsight. But when he said in the build-up to this, screw, <laughs> screw the belt, screw whatever, I have to, I have to beat this guy belt doesn't matter, the money doesn't matter, you know, whatever it is, I have to beat him. And he fought like that, man. He came out for this fight, and it's rare, not impossible, but it's rare when you realize in the moment how critical a fight is for certain fighters. Not just the fighter themselves, but everyone 
we all knew how important this fight was. Right? It, what if Pereira had won here? And I picked him to do so. Uh, he hadn't. He won the first round. At least I thought he did. I don't know what the official scorecards were, but like, he and Adesanya are very well matched. It's not like thinking he was going to win was nuts. If Adesanya loses here, I don't know what else there is for him. Like he would be, he would not only be stuck waiting for Pereira to lose the belt. But he would forever be that there's there would forever be on his record the guy he couldn't beat. And it, sometimes guys have losses on their record that they never avenge in the classical sense, but some of that's because their careers go in different directions. Some of that's how they lose. Like it's weird, but sometimes there's just the guy that you can't beat. Uh, BJ Penn was very nearly that for Matt Hughes. Their second fight, Hughes won, and he won fair. But, you know, it's not that BJ didn't have a lot of success in that fight either. Uh, I mean, the guy who really had Matt Hughes' number was actually Dennis Hallman. Uh, which is a weird thing to say. Like, you may not know. Dennis Hallman was kind of only known for a brief period of time. Like, some people knew that he was the guy who had... He beat Matt Hughes like three times, I think. Subbed him out pretty rapidly. Let me double check. I don't know if it was two or three. Um, yeah, it was twice, but the the real kicker was like the first fight lasted 17 seconds. He guillotine choked him. Uh, there That was in um, two, uh, 1998, excuse me. Their second fight, two years later in 2000, he tapped Matt Hughes with an armbar in 20 seconds. Like the guy was 2-0 and against Matt Hughes and fought him for less than a minute across two fights. <laughs> Just, and because Holman never achieved uh, this a lot of the fanfare that others might have, but but uh, you know, he's not thought of in the same way, but he, he had Matt Hughes' number. And it would have... It would have been worse in this case for Adesanya because he'd lost his belt to him and then couldn't get it back, like... It would have been one of those things that just hangs over your legacy. Uh, he knew it. He knew he needed it. And I think we all kind of knew it, too. Uh, man, I I don't know how good that must have felt for him. I mean, it's not just beating somebody, which I'm told is a great feeling. I haven't won. A, I've never won a professional fight. I've never had a professional fight. I don't think I'd win one if I took one. But when's the last time I actually won a? And you count stuff when you're a kid. I was a kid, so I'm not really gonna count it. But I haven't done any kind of like legitimate martial arts competition in a long time. A uh, number of reasons for that. But here he was, like, so not only did he win, not only did he knock somebody out, which I'm also told feels quite good, unless you, unless it's a real bad knockout and you don't hate the guy, that can actually feel pretty crappy, but to finally overcome something that's been dogging you for, again, like seven years almost, 
I don't know if you guys have ever done something. It doesn't even have to be like a physical activity, but have you ever had something that just dogged you for that long? Something that just was there, you know, for a lot years and years and years, and to finally get over it. Whatever it happens to be, I don't know. Again, like pick whatever you're talking about, but dang, that must have felt good. I mean, it clearly felt good for him. He celebrated. He, <laughs> by his own admission, what he did here was petty. But after he knocks out Pereira, he uh, he does Pereira's um, archer, you know, arrow shooting thing. But the petty thing is what he does after. He goes towards the edge of the cage. Points at someone in the crowd and then does the um, the Masvidal kind of dead body drop. I know Masvidal took it from somewhere else, but he was the first one I saw do it. Well, the story about that thing came out at the post-fight presser. He was pointing at Pereira's son, who was in the crowd. Now, he was doing that because in their second kickboxing fight, the one where Pereira knocked Adesanya out, Pereira's kid, who was, again, younger... Uh, got in the ring and did kind of a, he took kind of a pro wrestling back bump, mocking Adesanya getting knocked out. Dude. <laughs> and Adesanya wasn't, he remembered that, man. He didn't let that go. Um, I've seen some people get, look, man, there's a lot of people who don't like Adesanya again for a lot of reasons. And. There were some people who kind of got like, you know, you're a grown man. What are you doing making fun of a kid? And I just. I, I've struggled to explain this before on occasion. I really have. If you've never been around hyper competitive people, you, you don't understand this. I'm not a hyper competitive person. But I've been around a few. And that, that doesn't always manifest itself in sports. Sometimes it's, you know, uh, there's a lot of very good salesmen who are hyper-competitive. I hate salesmen, but I've been around some of them. Or, you know, certain people in the corporate business world, you know, not necessarily in sales, but in other avenues that are just like hyper-competitive. If you've never been around them for any length of time, you you may not understand this, but they remember that stuff. It drives them. It's and they can try to explain it, but until you actually see it, and I don't mean like see a documentary about it, though I'm gonna list a couple of those that might help. Until you actually see it up close, it's all the explanation in the world falls a little bit hollow. Because most of us aren't like that. And it's a very weird thing to be like that. Well, I shouldn't say very weird. If you are not like that, it's it's very difficult to relate to. So, if, again, if you want examples, let me give you two real fast. One is the two-part uh, ESPN 30 for 30 series on Lance, Ar- um, Lance Armstrong. I almost said Lance Archer, who's a professional wrestler, but... Um, cause he's got a line in there when he's talking about a, um, a, a comp- uh, one of his rivals in cycling and he 
talks about like reaching out to him when he was being publicly kind of castigated for anti-doping it for anti-doping issues which full cycling world was at the time but he he kind of got it bad and he was always kind of second to lance and the interviewer is asking him about like you know, why did you reach out to this guy he was your rival and lance's response was he got me up in the morning and this clearly doesn't mean anything to the interviewer because he goes on to elaborate a little bit like when you're that competitive you there's something driving you and you you put a face to it you have to because otherwise the drive becomes uh, it becomes unfocused it becomes destructive you know you're destructive anyway but that's a whole other thing having a person that you know is out there like you're you know you're in bed you're sleeping he's out there working that guy's out there on your tail he's why you wake up at five in the morning right he's the one who gets you up when you want to sleep in why don't you because that guy is out there right now doing the work and you better do the work too or he's gonna catch you that's that's kind of the it's a weird thing to say but that's one of the highest compliments that the hyper competitive people can pay each other it's one of the reasons they kind of mention it so often like no you made me better you pushed me it's one of the i mean it's a weird thing but like when floyd mayweather would talk about no i like doing a lot of my workouts at night because i want the other guys to know while they're sleeping i'm working that gets in people's heads man it does um, similar thing in the, um, the documentary, the last dance, the one on the uh, Chicago bulls, when Michael dude, Michael Jordan talks a lot about how he gets motivated and it's some petty stuff, man. It's small stuff. It's a line. It, it, I mean, in one case he actually mentions that, yeah, he made something up. He made up a story. Didn't happen created a fiction in his head about another player to drive so he could focus his motivation focus his drive on beating him when i tell you guys that fighters and champions in particular are pathologically competitive this is what i mean so did adesanya he re- i guarantee you man Look, fighters have kind of thin skins as a general rule. But they remember this stuff. If they're if they're the really motivated, the really aspirational ones, like the ones that really want to go after it, that have the ability, they hold on to this stuff. Dude, Connor holds on to this kind of stuff. Uh, everybody. Everybody who succeeds at that level... Maybe they don't talk about it, but you do not achieve that level of success, especially consistent success, without having that part of you. And he wasn't—he wasn't gonna pass up an opportunity to give that one back. <laughs> he just wasn't. So, and again, by his own admission, like, yeah, that's petty, but, dude, when the. When everything is against you, and 
People don't talk about this enough with Adesanya. Let me do this very briefly, then we're going to move on. There's been a contingent that has been fairly complimentary of Adesanya throughout his uh, UFC journey in particular, but MMA in general. There's been a lot that have been very critical. And I'm a critical guy, but I mean like super critical of him and what he could do. And they maintain, there's a lot who maintained that position past the point of rationality. Look, if you were a little bit skeptical after his debut when he fought uh, Rob McCullough and had some issues in the clinch, and had some issues clinch break, you know, clinch breaking and getting separation and whatnot, that was reasonable. There were reasonable questions. He answered them if you paid attention in fairly rapid succession. And yet, again, there's a... People try to backtrack this man, but there was a contingent that was... No... He's got no shot. This wrestler's going to beat him. He can't possibly beat Robert Whitaker, etc., etc. And in this instance, it's not just the noise that felt like it was against him. Dude, history was against him. This guy's beat you three times, twice finished you. Like, you're up against it, man. And history is against you. A good chunk of the fan base is against you. And this monster of a human being is going to be locked in the cage with you. And he's darn sure against you. When you overcome that. Ooh. That. Like, I'm, I'm just not going to sit here and get too mad at the guy for celebrating something like that. I'm just not. Um, next, Dana White mentioned that he was more interested in Pereira moving up to 205 than trying to do a trilogy fight between them in MMA. Um, Adesanya said that he considered this the end of the story. Fair play. Um, how do I say this? They could do a trilogy in MMA. They are one and one. They've stopped each other. But, I don't know, I just... I This is not me being like some great big Izzy fanboy going, no, I don't want to see him fight Pereira again. He might lose, and then it all comes crashing down. No, it's not that. It's more... Um... I'm just willing to let this be the story, right? I'm willing to let this be that Pereira was better than him three times. And better's, uh, again, it's kind of an odd thing to say when you consider how those in, all of those individual fights went, went in context, but the, he got the win in all three of those. I'm just willing to let this be that, yeah, Pereira has the better win-loss record against him, and Adesanya just won the last one. Look... A similar thing happened between Manny Pacquiao and uh, Juan Manuel Marquez. Like, Pacquiao beat him three times, and then in the fourth, Marquez finally... There's actually some really interesting videos on like some of the stuff Marquez did fight over fight that finally lined up that finishing blow, but, dude, he flatlined Pacquiao at the end of that. Who's the better fighter? I mean, we all, Pacquiao had the better win-loss record, Pacquiao had the better career... We didn't need another fight. 
And again, I know it's a little bit different here, but... And I'm not going to throw a fit if they made a rematch here, but I don't... I don't see the necessity. Um, Pereira at 205 is an interesting animal, I think. He was a big guy for 185. I mean, again, I've seen him... There's pictures of him next to guys who fight at 205. He's actually bigger than them. He's a big guy. Uh, he was able to benefit from his size. In fact, on a technical level, part of what Adesanya did here actually involves Pereira's guard and hand position. Uh, Gabriel Varga, who's a multiple-time kickboxing world champion across several different organizations, yeah, he's got a very good, he's got a very nice YouTube channel. Uh, I find him to be a insightful, uh, knowledgeable, a very nice resource. But he's got a video out actually on Pereira's guard in particular and what it kind of opens up and how that works and how that some of that was what Adesanya um, was able to capitalize on. A lot of Pereira's success, uh, not a lot, a component of his success was his frame. The fact that he was a very large guy for this weight class. You can be both, you can both benefit from the general size advantage that you have and also still not quite have the durability maybe that you'd like because the weight cut can compromise you. Um, personally, I don't, I'm not saying Pereira should jump straight to a title shot, although light heavyweight's such a mess, who knows. But uh, I'd be very curious to see him at light heavyweight. I don't know, maybe his durability, maybe it's just an issue of, you know, Adesanya's accurate punching, and Adesanya's a fairly powerful striker. I mean, again, he's not one-punching a ton of guys, but he hits more than hard enough. But I'd, I'd be curious to see him at light heavyweight. Um, dude, I might favor him. That's going to be matchup dependent for him. Um... I might favor him over Jamal Hill, in all honesty. That's not a knock on Hill, but that's just a matchup. Um, there's other guys there, though, who I would be... I mean, 205 doesn't exactly have the best wrestlers in the world, but there's some big guys who know how to... There are a few big guys who know how to wrestle there. And that might be a problem for him, so... Um, be curious to see. I think Jan Blahovich after the fa after the fight, said... You know, I'd love to have a... If you're looking for another rematch to avenge a loss, I'd love to come down and fight you for the belt. Blahovich, he might have just been kind of joking around. I mean, he followed that up with a picture of, like, my weight cut starts now and it's him with, like, espresso and cigarettes. Um, Blahovich at middleweight would be an interesting proposition. He's a very thick guy. So he might have it to lose, but... That might also be just too much for him. I don't know. Um, again, he might also have been joking around, so who knows. But um, Adesanya back on top at middleweight. First ever two-time middleweight champion in the UFC. No one's ever regained the belt after losing it in that weight class before, so good for him. I uh, don't know where he goes specifically. Middleweight's kind of weird. Um, there's a few guys who maybe were on the up, were coming up, who suffered some unfortunate setbacks. Uh, Roman Delidze couldn't quite get by Marvin Vittori. Um, 
the name that kind of got bandied about afterwards was uh, Adesanya and um, Drakus Duplessis. Duplessis might be <clears throat> he might be the only guy again kind of coming up who hasn't really suffered a loss and hasn't fought Adesanya yet. So that's an outside possibility. I'd kind of like to see him win one more fight personally, but that's just me. Um, yeah, again, really, like, this felt like a big moment, so, and it was. So, kudos to both guys. Uh, let's see, moving on. Co-main event, I don't have a lot to say here. Gilbert Burns defeats Rory Masvidal via unanimous decision. 129-28, 230-27s. I can see Masvidal getting the first. I gave it to Burns, but I can see the argument. Two and three were Burns pretty clearly. Um, Masvidal... Retired after the fight. He got political at the end, which I'm never a fan of. Um, it's one thing to acknowledge that you're fighting in front of a former president of the United States. It's another to kind of, yes, he's the greatest president ever. I don't think that's... You gotta be a really, when I say hardcore Trump guy, like, you gotta be super in the weeds on that to think he's the best president ever. I don't think he was the worst president ever, but I don't think he was the best. My opinion. Then he puts over, I think, uh, the Florida governor, because he's a Florida guy, and, eh. I, I, look. I'm one of the guys who would generally prefer politics be out of sport. I don't talk about mine here, except on the occasion that it intersects with what I'm talking about as it pertains to fighting. And they do intersect on occasion, but for the most part, you know, I don't talk politics here because it's not usually all that relevant. So, the fact that, and I'll state this for the record, I lean a little more conservative, and that's as far as I'm going to go here. I've never, I didn't vote for Trump either time. I didn't vote for Clinton or Biden, for that matter. I, uh, again, not getting into it. Did not vote for any of, I have not voted main party in the last couple of presidential elections, so. Feel free to yell at me about wasting my vote if you'd like, and I have a mathematical proposition for you after the fact that would argue whether or not that's true. But neither here nor there. I, again, I'm one of the guys who would rather there not be a lot of politics in my sports. And again, like, it's one thing to acknowledge a dignitary in attendance. It's another to go in the way Masvidal did. And look, it's his post-fight interview. It's his retirement speech. Yeah... I'd, again, I'd rather it not happen. And this is from a guy who, you know, this is somewhat more in line with my political views than guy than the other side of the aisle. And I'd still rather it not be here. So, I mean, look, I didn't, I didn't, I'm not up in arms over it. This is just a preference thing. So, take that for whatever it's worth. Um, just very briefly about Masvidal. Since he's retired. I'm talking about, I'll talk about Burns in a second. Let me talk about Masvidal first. I mean, the man's 38. Um, he's been fighting forever, man. He had, what, 52 MMA fights? A bunch of backyard fights? 
Uh, he started fighting professionally in 2003. I was still in high school when this guy started fighting. He fought everywhere. He fought in every organization, pretty much. I mean, he fought in AFC. He fought in Bodog. He had that really nice head kick win over Eve Edwards in Bodog fight. You guys may not remember Bodog fight. I do. Strike Force, Sengoku, uh, Bellator, Shark. He had a Shark Fights fight, if you'll recall. Uh, again, Strike Force in the UFC, and just this guy was in the trenches for a long time. He was. He has some very, and he fought everybody. I mean, he fought everybody, man. He only had two rematches his entire career, I think. He had the two fights with Usman. And he had another... I feel like he had one more. Um, I'm pretty sure I can find that. Um... Might have been from his, like, again, illegal backyard fighting was the one of the only... I haven't watched enough of those, but... Like, he didn't have a lot of rematches. Just fought kind of everybody. And he flipped a bit of a narrative in his career, man. He was always a tough out. I kind of thought he beat Damian Maya when they fought in 2017. Not saying scoring it for Maya is crazy. I scored it for him, for whatever that's worth. Um, he had some tough split decision losses, and some of them were a little bogus. Uh, I thought Henderson beat him. I think I thought Larkin beat him. I thought he beat Iaquenta. I thought he beat Maya. Uh, Steven Thompson kind of gave him the business. Um, but that's just his UFC run uh, that I'm kind of referencing here, but... Like, end of 2017, he's on a two-fight losing streak, and it's just he's a guy that was always well-respected. Always a very tough out. He was the kind of guy that, if you talked with fighters, they all said, no, Hori Masvidal's really good. The fact that in 2019, in, you know, his mid-30s, he turned this around, like, that doesn't happen. You don't get guys 40-plus fights into their career, you know, passing their physical prime, suddenly becoming stars. And he did in 2019, man. He became a star. He got a title shot. In short notice, yeah, but he still got it. He's... You don't get that very often. Like it, it's again, it's super rare to see somebody that senior in their career go from being again respected but middle-ish of the pack to a headliner. Dude, his fight with Nate Diaz was not only in front of Tr- President Trump; he was president at the time. It was such a big deal that the Can um, was that Canelo? Yeah, it was Canelo and um, Sergey Kovalev had a boxing match same night, 
they delayed the start of Canelo, the biggest star in boxing, and Kovalev to not run at the same time as Masvidal and Nate Diaz. That doesn't happen. And frankly, it was disrespectful to both Kovalev and Canelo that they did, but I understand it, even if I wouldn't necessarily have made that same decision. Like, you don't see that very often. I don't think I could give you another example of somebody like that. I mean, he mentioned it after the fact, like, you know, I'm a multimillionaire now, and I came from nothing. You know, this is why people fight. This is why people fight, because... You can't, they can't do anything else, and they want to try and go from nothing to something. So, you know, good luck to him, whatever he does next. Uh, yeah, as for Burns, he says, you know, I, I want the next title shot, and I'm not taking another fight until I accept for that one. Fair enough. I mean, Burns is, um... Burns ain't young either. He's, what, 36? Yeah, he's 36. He'll be 37 in July. Um, the stat came out recently. I'm going to repeat it. I mentioned it a few weeks ago. I'm going to repeat it again here. <clears throat> Fighters over the age of 35, and that's not 36. That's 35 and up. In UFC title fights... From one hundred from welterweight to flyweight, and including both of them, so yeah, flyweight to welterweight. The record of fighters in title fights, men's side of things. Um, once you hit thirty-five, the record is two and twenty-eight all time in the UFC. Those two wins are Tyron Woodley, one against Damian Maya, who was forty-something himself, and then against Darren Till who shouldn't have been in the title picture. That's it. Otherwise, 35, you're done. You're just done in those divisions. It's not... Dude, welterweight... uh, Sorry, middleweight and up might as well be a different sport in some respects. Welterweight to flyweight... Dude, 35, that's the Grim Reaper scythe, man. Historically, at least. So, I mean, it just hit Usman. Makes me worried for Volkanovski, I can tell you that. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's a dismal record, man. Some of those are very good fighters, too. Just dismal. Um... So, I'm not sure how much... I, I'm not going to sit here and discount Gilbert Burns. I'm not. He's a very good fighter. But I don't know how much I like his chances against Edwards or Covington. I don't know. But, I mean, he knows, like, this is his last shot. Like, he's not going to risk his title shot fighting somebody else between now and then. So, uh, Solid enough win for Burns. Bantamweight. Good fight here. Rob Font defeats Adrian Yanez via TKO. 257 of the first punches. These two got after it right away. Both men work in their jabs. Both men have very good jabs. Um, both men got hurt a little bit early. Here's the thing about this fight. 
I don't know if Font saw something in Yanez that made him adjust to this, or if this is something Font likes to do more generally and it and Yanez was not aware of it. Font was constantly collar tying. Anytime he'd throw the jab, if he could grab afterwards, grab a collar tie, fire the right hand. He landed some good uppercuts that way that bothered Yanez. Uh, and the finishing blow, man. He jabs in, ties up. Yanez throws a kind of a left uppercut, sort of. His left hand is engaged, and Font's holding, again, got the collar tie, throws a right hand that's kind of a shovel hook. It's not an uppercut. It's not nearly straight enough. It's not a hook. He gets that, at that diagonal and just crushes Yanez with it. Um, Font's left eye was busted up. I... Given how the last two fights went for Font, I think there's a real physical durability issue that's starting to rear its head here. I may be wrong about that, but that's kind of my hunch. I think I think there, the damage has accumulated, and it's starting to show on him faster and faster in fights. Uh, I said last week, like this might very well be one of those fights where the younger, talented fighter takes a step up and takes a step too far. That's kind of what played out here. I still think very highly of Yanez. He's again, he's a very good fighter, tremendous upside. But turns out Font was just a bridge too far for him. Uh, very necessary win for Font. This was a good little fight. Real good fight. Guys, watch this fight if you want to understand the value of holding and hitting. Holding and hitting isn't just about generating power. It helps. The real value of holding and hitting is target knowledge. Right? Most people have pretty good awareness of their own body. Right? Uh, I forget the technical term. Is it prior, uh, prior perception? I'm going to look that up because it's going to bother me. It's not quite proprioception. It's just kind of awareness of your body in space. It's more like how your body relates to itself. It might still be proprioception, but... <laughs> It's one of the it's one of the things that goes away when you're impaired. It's why um, like part of a field sobriety test is give me a T pose, close your eyes, and put your finger on your nose. Right? If you're not impaired, you can do this easily because you know where your body is in space and you know how it relates to you. This is all these are all known ask known quantities, right? Well, if I'm so if I'm holding something, I know right where it is. And one of the big things about striking is knowing where your target is or where it's going to be so you can hit it effectively. Well, if I'm holding you, I, I'm not guessing where you might move. I'm not anticipating. I have actual knowledge of where you are. It means I can fire more accurately. Font was able to hold and hit at will, and if you can, and it's legal, this is why it's valuable. It's the ability to accurately land strikes because you have full knowledge of where the target is. The extra power you can generate, it's nice. It's not the real benefit, and some people miss that. The real benefit, target acquisition and target knowledge. So...
Good example of why that's very valuable here. Good example. Yanez did not fight that collar tie, man. He kept trying to kind of punch. He was trying to punch with the jab of font. You know, counter it with a cross as it's coming in. Which is not a bad idea to deal with a jab. But any time font made contact, he then turned the jab into a grip. And Yanez was not very diligent about dealing with that quickly. And that's what led to his downfall. Still have very, very high aspiration, uh, hopes for Yanez. He's very good. Um, but, you know, just a little bit of a bridge too far here. Uh, I, I expect he'll be back at this level in relatively short order, but... You know, um, I'm going to talk about uh, Raul, uh, Raul Rosas Jr. in a little bit. I want to compare and contrast very briefly, because Rosas lost pretty badly. Um, what Yanez learned here was a refining thing, right? Like, it's one thing to have a bit of knowledge about, you gotta fight grips, man. Because <clears throat> you do. It's another to have it made very, very clear for you and learn and figuring out how to prioritize that and learning, because there's a bunch of ways to deal with it. He just, it was either a sort of general lack of respect paid to what was happening or uh, again just kind of a minor oversight in terms of things we prioritize that's a fairly easy fix it's it's a refinement you learn a lot of lessons that refine you in the UFC what you shouldn't be learning in the UFC is some is baseline stuff and Again, we'll compare and contrast in a minute, but Font, very needed win. He wants to welcome Davis and Figueredo to bantamweight. I'm not going to object to that fight one iota. Go ahead and make it. Uh, welterweight, Kevin Holland defeated Santiago Ponzinibbio via knockout. Really nice left hook, actually. 316 of the third. Um, did I mention the time for Font and Yanez? It was 257 of the first, if I didn't. If I did, I apologize for repeating myself. Holland and Ponzinibbio was a fun little fight. Um, man, Ponzinibbio just had a series of health issues, mostly related to leg injuries and infections, that just completely derailed him a few years ago. Just completely. He's not the same guy he used to be. He can muster it on occasion, but he's not that guy anymore. Holland... Did kind of Holland things. He dropped Ponzinibbio in the end of the first with a back fist. He throws a kick, a right kick. Ponzinibbio catches it. Holland, with his, you know, ridiculously long limbs, swings a right hook. Doesn't really land, but instead of resetting, he just swings the right hook. Ah, throws a back fist. Ponzinibbio doesn't really see it coming. Cracks him in the jaw and drops him. Um, that wasn't the end. That was at the end of the first. Because Holland... A lot of Holland's success in striking, he hits hard. I don't mean to imply otherwise. But he hits you when you're not expecting it with strikes you're not expecting. And that combination of things will rattle you, even if you have a good chin. Uh, the finish was... The finish was interesting. It's a nice little lesson in proper defense. So... Holland lands a right hand that bothers Ponzinibbio. Ponzinibbio kind of uh, gets turned around 
as he's resetting, Ponzinibbio is trying to defend himself, so he reaches out. And, unfortunately, that's a bad idea against Holland for a couple of reasons I'll get to in a second. Holland then cracks him with a left hand. Um, Ponzinibbio face plants. Um, we're done. He wasn't happy about the stoppage, but I... Dude, you were, you were unconscious. So... So, let me just very briefly, what happened on the finish, Ponzinibbio, he's trying to reset. And as he does, again, he kind of reaches with both arms. Using a little bit of what might be kind of similar to a second time I'm referencing George Foreman tonight. But George Foreman's mummy guard. Muhammad Ali made fun of it. But it's a, it's a legitimate guard. It's the arms a bit further. Again, if you watch Ali kind of make fun of it. He does the. He calls it the Mummy Guard because it's like the mummy in the old Universal monster movies, which is very similar to the Frankenstein walk. I right? like the arms straight out. That's an exaggeration because Ali is exaggerating for comedic effect. The general purpose of that kind of guard is to disrupt punching lanes, measure your opponent, create obstacles, and, and it's boxing, so you're not really tying up in the same way. But you know, a little bit of bicep control here and there, lining up your punches. Not a bad thing. The problem with that guard, like all guards, they have pluses and minuses, right? There's no perfect guard. There's the one that works for you. And that even changes in the middle of a fight. Watch some, you know, both Canelo, Floyd Mayweather, um, I think Dimitri Bivol does this too. Like, at different points in a fight, they will have a high guard, they will have like a Philly shell going on, they will, they change their guard. Occasionally go cross guard if you're feeling spicy, um, but there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of changing there because they all have different advantages. The the mummy guard, it's great at disrupting wide punchers. It exposes your body though, which is a problem. It if you're dealing with someone who's a good straight puncher, it can be a problem because again like. You're not really, like, in tight with your defense. It's a, little it's a little out, and straight punches can get through. Again, can be a problem, not the biggest problem. The real problem with the mummy guard, at least my experience, if you use it, you better be the longer-limbed guy. Preferably taller as well. This is one of the reasons, I mean, this is one of the reasons George Foreman just mowed through Joe Frazier with it. There's other stylistic things that make Joe Fra that make um, Foreman just a total nightmare for all smoking Joe. But his guard in particular, just like it wrecks everything that made Joe Frazier great. And you still have to be, you know, I couldn't do that. You have to be big George Foreman. He's a large man and strong, and has all these other assets at his disposal as well in terms of you know, also serious punching power. But just that guard makes that style of fighting very, very difficult. And the problem is, though, if you're the, if you have shorter arms, extending like that leaves these open punching lanes for someone to throw, again, kind of overhand punches that go around your arm. And if your arms aren't long enough <clears throat> to actually disrupt the lane, you just are leaving a fairly clear path to your head. Well, Holland is much longer limbed than Ponzinibbio. Crushes him with it. Now, again, 
Ponzinibbio was already hurt. He was just trying to reset. This is just an object lesson in... Here, this is a guard style. It has pluses and minuses. Here's the minuses, just so you're aware of them. So if you're fighting a guy taller than you, don't don't use this guard. That's almost never going to work. Um, yeah, good win for Holland again. Ponzinibbio, um, yeah, he's, he's past it. I'm not saying he should retire, but... At, you know, 30... 36, but he's got a lot of fights, man. He's got 36 fights. Um, his time being near the top of the division is probably over. Uh, just a hunch. Right, and kicking off the main card, Christian Rodriguez defeats Raul Rosas Jr. via unanimous decision. 229-28, Um Worth noting, Rodriguez missed weight. I don't think it affected this fight, but it's worth saying it. <clears throat> so, let's talk about Raul Rosas Jr. He made waves by being by fighting on the Contender Series when he was 17, and now he's 18. And he got a win in his UFC debut, and he's the youngest fighter on the UFC roster. And he's got some personality, and he kind of... Charisma in fighting is so weird. Because it has almost nothing to do with charisma, with how charisma manifests in other endeavors, right? Um, you know, charisma in professional wrestling is, you can kind of see it, but there's some there's some prerequisites for it. it you, you can pick your sport, like you can find guys who are charismatic in all of those areas. But they all kind of follow different patterns. Fight, charisma in fighting is so weird. Because it's not really to do with... It's not really to do with your promo ability in the traditional sense of the word. Like, you need a degree of confidence speaking on the microphone in public. But you don't... Look at all the different kinds of... Uh, you know, personalities that have drawn big money and big fan bases in MMA. Like, Chuck Liddell and Conor McGregor are wildly different. Wildly different. And yet they both have fighting charisma. Right? It's not really to do with how you look. It's not really to do with... It's not even really necessarily to do with your win-loss record. That's part of it, but it's not the only thing. It's this weird amalgamation of those things and just kind of... It's not even really the promotional hype. That helps. Because the promotion's been behind Rosas pretty hard. I mean, they put him on the main card of a pay-per-view in his second UFC fight at the age of 18. Like that, The UFC is behind this guy. But it's again, it's just kind of this weird bit of all of it. Like, can you actually fight? That helps. Can you speak in public? You know, you don't. Yeah, you know, not everybody's gonna be, you know, Connor or Adesanya or you know, these guys who's like, you know, very very eloquent. Sometimes being a little bit, I hate the word, but being cringy, draw like, dude, Colby Covington's shtick is a little bit, you know, cringe-inducing. Yet it works. Yet it's over. Uh, 
He's not the best public speaker in the world. Not by a long shot. But something about his delivery makes it work. And the fact that he's a very good fighter helps and you know, lots of other stuff. But it's just weird because Rosas, I'm not saying he's a bad looking guy, but you know, he's not a conventionally attractive human being. He's only 18. He does have confidence when speaking. But he doesn't have this great body of work. He's not especially witty. Uh, he just he, I mean, again, he's 18. He does the same. He says the same kind of things most 18-year-olds say. He just does it very confidently in a microphone, into a microphone, in front of you know, fight journalists. You know, anytime he's asked about you know, there's some criticisms about your placement here. Ah, they're just hating. Like. This is traditional stuff. But you'd be foolish to deny the fact that this guy has drawn something of an audience. Couldn't tell you... I couldn't tell you why. But, you know, I'm a 37-year-old guy, so what do I know in that respect? I'm just saying, like, you'd be foolish to ignore the fact that this guy is... He's got support. He's got support. Um... Here's the problem. He shouldn't be in the UFC. And I don't say that to dump on him. I really don't. But the number of guys or girls who can come into the UFC with less than 10 fights and be successful is pretty darn low. The number of people who can do that before they can legally drink, even lower. Um, This fight played out as follows. Rosas came out hot, got a takedown, hit some mat returns, got the back, tried the choke, couldn't get the choke, tried the choke, and Rodriguez just survived the first round. And then everything about Rosas' game fell apart. His cardio was not there, his takedowns became worse, his striking looked terrible. And I don't, like, like his striking looked bad, like just straight up bad. Rodriguez just beat him up. He beat him up on the feet. He was able to get top position because Rosas lost all the drive on his takedowns and wound up like pulling guard, basically. Rodriguez got on top. Like, um, this was a rough fight for Rosas. Now, here's the thing. Almost every fighter in the world has a loss like this on their record. You can find exceptions, but for the sake of argument, everybody has one of these. And don't throw me a GSP who never had a loss like this. Maybe the Matthews lost the first. I mean, he's lost to Matthews, maybe. John Jones didn't have a loss like this. Okay. Khabib didn't have a loss like this. Okay. Like just the super exceptions exist. Okay. I'll give you that. <clears throat> Generally. Everybody has a loss like this. Everybody has that first time when they think they're invincible. And they go out there, and their game doesn't work. And oh crap, I'm tired. And oh crap, I'm hurt. And what do I do? And you don't do anything because you don't know how to do anything else. And you get beat up. And you sigh, and you pick yourself up, and you go back to the drawing board, and you start over again. Right? This happens all the time. It shouldn't happen in the UFC. I mean this. The first time you have this loss on your record should not be in the UFC. 
It really shouldn't. This is a like this. This is a baseline. This is not about refinement, right? Guys lose in the UFC and they learn to refine things. Like okay, my cage positioning maybe could use some work. That's a high. That's a high level thing to refine. I need to be better at grip fighting or being more mindful of it. That's a, again. That's a tweak. That's not a new skill. That's not a. Again, it's a tweak. You refine things in the UFC. That's what it's for. It's for. It's for. It's where you go after you've built everything else. Then you start refining, right? Because in theory, you're going to fight guys who are going to show you things you're not aware of that you could not find elsewhere. This is the whole theory of the best fighting the best. You're only going to find holes in your game when you're really, really good by fighting other guys who are really, really good. I'm not trying to dump on Christian Rodriguez here either, okay? But guys like Christian Rodriguez exist on the regional scene. They exist in LFA, Cage Warriors, um, Titan FC still around? If they are, they exist in Titan. Um, what's the C- CWC? There's something with those, with C and W's. I, I forget what the acronym, uh, I forget what the initialization rather stands for, so forgive me, but there's some higher order regional MMA where Rosa should have run into a guy like Christian Rodriguez and should have learned this lesson there. Because this is not about him learning the lesson, okay? Believe it or not, this is not what this is about. Here's what this is about. Learning this lesson, this foundational lesson at this level, you won't get to learn it. I mean that. And I don't mean like no one will show it to you. I mean you will never get the benefits of learning. Everybody and their dog saw this, right? And we're talking about bantamweight here. This is maybe the best division in the sport. Everybody saw this. Everybody that's been around the block. Everybody with 15 to 20 fights. Everybody that's learned this lesson before, everybody that's going to look at Raul Rosas Jr. and go, okay, I know exactly where you are, and I know exactly how to make everything about this experience for you miserable, so that you never get better. Ever. You should not learn this lesson this publicly in the biggest organization in the world. You just shouldn't. And that that's not only like that's only arguing that the UFC should be home to the very best fighters. This is about what's best for your fighter development. I, I again I'm not trying to dump on Christian Rodriguez here. He's not a bad fighter. But he does represent at the moment the undercard of UFC bantamweights. If that guy's doing this to you, that's a problem. Because there's a lot of guys better than him. 
There's a lot, and there's a lot of guys, again, right at his level, too. There's a lot of guys, like, right around there. And they are going to, they saw this, every one of them. You've got some name value. You talked some smack. You've got the hype packages. You're opening pay-per-view cards in your second UFC fight. People saw this. And there's a lot of guys who are going to try to make their name off of you. You, Rosas, you talked. Like, this wasn't just the UFC hype job. He went out there and he said, I'll be champion within a year. Sure. Uh, Plenty of guys are going to be salivating over fighting him next. Because, this is the other thing about this, man. Everybody that's been through this, because pretty much everybody has one of these losses, they know what's next. Like, they know how they try to fix it. They know how to exploit it. You just suffered a normal setback in a terrible division, in a division where it's terrible to do that, on a stage that magnifies every problem that's about to come. If this same loss happens to him, again, Guys like Christian Rodriguez exist on the regional scene. You need upper and regional, but they exist. They're in the LFAs. If this happens, you know, featured bout, not not main event, but like say the, you know, co-main or the featured bout on an LFA card, everybody shrugs. Everybody shrugs. And he gets to focus on improving, learning from this. And... Is his next fight still going to be hard? Yeah, but he's not going to have to fight someone who's genuinely UFC caliber. He's not going to have to do it on a big card. Like, uh, Developing fighters is such a... Uh, everybody wants it now, and especially fighters. A lot of these guys are struggling financially. And... You know, the UFC offering you 10 and 10 off the Contender Series, that's more than you're going to make in most regional fights. It just is. But if you're this young, figure out another way, man. You have to develop as a fighter. You have to have the learning experiences. Sometimes those are losses. Sometimes you have fights that just even though you win, you know... You take it as a loss and you learn the lessons you need to learn. You need to do that, and you need to do that away from the spotlight. Away from the spotlight. You don't want to have to learn this lesson on this stage with this many other people. Circle All these wolves out there, man, just circling that little ring of light that your campfire's given off. They're all there. UFC has been deferential to him in its match in their matchmaking. Like he was supposed to win this fight. He couldn't. That's uh, not good. They're gonna have to be very careful how they try to matchmake him. Well, or they're not. Or they're going to play a little bit of hardball and don't. The UFC would like the hype to pay off. They really would. But there's a, there's an undercurrent here of if this winds up being a lesson 
for the the MMA world more generally that we don't pull our punches. There's value to that too. Like if Rosas flames out in two more fights, the UFC isn't going to bat an eye. Promoter's not your friend, guys. Promoter is not your friend. Your interests may align in some ways, but they don't have your back. They don't. Again, if Rosas flames out, the UFC gets out there, whoever faced, Dana White or whoever, shrugs and says, yeah, this is hard. This is a difficult endeavor. He couldn't cut it. Maybe he can win his way back, assuming he's not been ruined in the interim. Because he was in some bad spots here, and somebody with more serious ground and pound could do damage. Um, you really don't want to be trying to develop your baseline skill set in the UFC. It won't go well. It just won't go well for you. You should probably have a five-round fight under your belt before you get to the UFC. We're kind of at that point. There's enough other organizations, like, you should have gone 25 minutes, or at least been scheduled for it and trained for it at least once before you ever get to the UFC. Uh, I don't know what they're going to do next with him. The UFC still probably seems to like him. But if they, they are happy for him to be hyped, if that pays off, great. If he becomes a cautionary tale, not the worst thing in the world for them either. They've survived hype jobs falling apart before. Guys, the UFC has really liked falling apart. Sage Northcutt, Paige Van Zant, Mickey Gall to some degree. They'll take a cautionary tale. They'll take a cup. They'll take a slightly increased profile while you give them a little bump if they can get one. And if you wind up being a guy they point to and go, this is for real, and it's not for everybody, they'll do that too. All right. Ooh, been going for a bit here. Prelims. Kelvin Gastelum defeated Chris Curtis for unanimous decision. 229-28, 130-27. 30-27 is a crap scorecard. Curtis won the third round minimum. I scored this for Chris Curtis. The problem came in the second round. Now, Gastelum wins the first. He lands the better punches. He's light on his feet. He's got stuff working. Curtis usually... Curtis is a bit of a slow starter. First round, not his best round. Second round, things start cooking. Here's the problem for Curtis, and this is really unfortunate, mind you. But there's a moment when they clash. Curtis has been doing the better work more generally in this round, but it's been back and forth. They've been giving it to each other. They clash and they bang heads, and Curtis drops. By his own admission, after the fact, he was out for a second. Like, uh, the top of Gastelum's head, the old uh, cheeky nodder in some respects, catches Curtis on the chin. He drops down to his knees, Gastelum gets into the ride, swings punches, Curtis recovers, gets back to his feet, finishes the round. Still does very good work by the end of the round, mind you. But here's the thing. If you thought that what happened in that clash was Gastelum dropping Curtis with a punch, then Gastelum should win that round. If you knew it was a headbutt, and I did, I did before the commentary team confirmed it. Like, there's the way they came together. Like, that headbutt? It looked like a headbutt. 
Commentary then said, yeah, it was a clash of heads. The referee did not either know or didn't tell anybody. And so if you didn't think, if you thought that what dropped Curtis was a legitimate blow, then Gastelum should have won the round. That That's fair. It wasn't a legitimate blow. I know that, so I discount the knockdown, and I think Curtis wins that round if you discount it, because he does better work. He was ripping to the body. Man, he hurt Gaston to the body several times with right hands. Ooh, both got southpaw. Third round again. Third round, I thought, was Curtis's without too much controversy. Um, This was your fight of the night. These two just went at it. This was a heck of a fight. Um, Hats off to both guys. Again, I thought Curtis won. But, and again, he admitted this. It's... uh, it was a rough... The optics didn't look good, because if you thought he was dropped legitimately, then yes, Gastelum should have won that round. If you know that he wasn't dropped legitimately, Curtis wins the round, but... Uh, it's unfortunate. Needed win for Gastelum, um, but he he slowed. He looked, The body work hurt him. I mean, some of the stuff he did looked good. Like, he was lighter on his feet to start. He still got fast hands. He had a lot straighter punches than he normally does. Both guys fighting southpaw opened up some weird, some interesting stuff for both guys. Again, the body work from Curtis was a real problem for Gastelum. He was he was chewing those ribs up. Um, this was your fight of the night. Like I mentioned, I have no problem with that. Darn good fight. I scored it for Curtis, but honestly... 29-28 either way is defensible and acceptable. 30-27, no. No, Curtis won the third. Like, that shouldn't be complicated, but here we are. Uh, women's strawweight, Luana Pinero defeated Michelle Waterson via split decision. These were 29-28s. Um, this fight wasn't great. It just wasn't. Um, Waterson continues her long tradition of not actually hitting like, so much of what she throws fall... Like, if Michelle Watterson could go back through her entire career and just fight, like, two inches closer to her opponent the whole time, her entire career trajectory is different. I mean, the stats on this... Let me just very briefly grab these, because it was... Uh, uh do do not per round... Uh, let me look around very briefly. Um, do we have my target here? Yeah, here we do. So, Michelle Waterson Gomez. She landed only 32% of her significant strikes. She landed a... This, this number is so bad. I can't stress this enough. Like, neither of these women had a great percentage here like some people were crying robbery it wasn't a robbery you want to argue for michelle waterson gomez like i'm not saying that's the craziest thing this wasn't a robbery she landed 18 head strikes out of 114 attempted like that's just really really bad 
I mean, it's not like Paneros was great. She was like 16 of 79. The thing was, Paneros strikes did more damage. And that's kind of the big thing here. Like this wasn't again, this wasn't a great fight. And if you if you wanted to say that you thought Watterson won, okay, I don't think you're crazy. But 18 of 114 thrown. <sighs> That's just... That's such a waste of energy, man. Such a waste. Uh, middleweight Joe Pyfrey defeated Gerald Mershart via TKO punches, 315 of the first, as expected. Mershart's not a bad fighter, but he's at a stage in his career where, like, the first time real adversity hits him, especially concussive adversity, he kind of folds. And Pyfer's got some thump. Pyfer, another guy who's going to learn the hard way in the near future that the UFC is not his friend. For now, they seem to be his friend, but they're not his friend. Your interest is in the line. Be very careful, man. Because... Yeah, that's going to go sideways. Like, right now, he's kind of preaching the good word of the UFC. That doesn't pay off. Well, I shouldn't say doesn't. It rarely pays off in any meaningful way. Uh, kicking off the ESPN prelims, we had Lupita Godinez defeat Cynthia Calvillo via split decision. It was a 29-28 either way than a 30-27 for Godinez. I can see 30-27 for Godinez. This wasn't a great fight either. Calvillo continues slipping. Um, again, not a great fight. I scored it for Godinez, but what did I get? I gave uh, Calvillo, I gave her one round, and I think I, I said the other was close. Like, 29-28 either way is perfectly acceptable. And even 30-27 for Godinez isn't, it, that's not an egregious scorecard. Um... On the early prelims, let's see, Ignacio Bahamondes defeated Trey Ogden via unanimous decision, 230-27s, 129-28. Not sure about 29-28 for Ogden. Um, one of the rounds was competitive enough to kind of warrant it, but again, not my favorite thing. Solid win for Bahamondes. Um, Steve Garcia defeated Shailon Nerdanbeke via knockout body hit and punch, 36 seconds of the second round. Take just a second here and appreciate this. Nerdenbeke wins the first, but kind of gasses himself out with all the grappling. Um, Garcia comes out second round, gets right in his face, gets right on offense, hits a sick body kick, follows it up with a left hand of the body, pretty much the same spot, just folds him up like a lawn chair. Really nice stuff from Garcia there. Staying competitive in the first and overcoming the setbacks. Recognizing the weakness that your opponent's showing. Uh, good stuff from him. Kicking everything off, Sam Hughes got herself in hot water. She defeats Jacqueline Amarim via unanimous decision. 29-28 across the board. Uh, Amarim wins the first. I actually had her a 10-8 in the first, but maybe I was a little bit generous with it. Um, quick back take from Amarim. She spent, gets a couple of near chokes but can't quite finish. Then falls off. Hughes wins rounds two and three. Not two. Nothing really complicated here. Sam Hughes got in hot water after the fight. When at her interview segment with the general MMA media, she said, my boyfriend bet $1,000 on me to win, and I expect to see all the revenue from that. And any of us who paid attention 
to what happened with James Krause and what the UFC said they were going to do to get good with the regulators, especially the Canadian regulators, immediately went, oh boy, you don't know what you just did. Um, if you don't remember, let me reiterate in kind of shorthand, the UFC said, now this is the UFC, the laws about this, the actual, like, again, laws vary a little bit from state to state, and they prevent you from betting against yourself. Like, most of the, most places legally you can bet on yourself, you cannot bet against yourself for somewhat, uh, reasons it should be self-evident. So the law doesn't necessarily prohibit this. The UFC, on the other hand, does. The UFC said, if you'll recall, what happened with uh, Derek Minner and James Krause. Um, UFC got in some hot water over that. Um, a few places in New Jersey stopped taking bets on UFC fights. Two Canadian provinces banned it. While the UFC kind of figured out what they were going to do, so the UFC went a little bit scorched earth. Their policy became fighters may not bet on fights. Trainers may not bet. Managers may not bet. Family of fighters may not bet. And I, I think the other thing was like, um, you can't bet on fighters like from your gym. I'd have to double check. There's some specifics here. The long and the short of it is the UFC came out and said, if you are involved with a fighter, professionally or personally, you may not gamble on their fights. Might have said that you can't gamble on UFC events at all. Again, that's a that's a, spe- a specific detail I'd have to double check. Either way, her boyfriend betting on her to win is in violation of the standards and practices the UFC said they were putting in place. So, we get to see what they're going to do about this, because they've come out and said, you can't do this. Here's a fighter saying, I did this. (laughs) Again, I don't know exactly what the UFC is going to do, but they can't. Here's the thing. They can't. Do nothing. They must do something about this. So, don't know what it's going to be, but they don't need to be in hot water with regulators again. And if they're, this is the other thing, if you say, here's the steps we're putting in place to gain back the confidence in regulatory bodies that what we're putting on is a legitimate product... If a fighter comes out and says, I have violated these procedures, these standards, you must act. You have to. You just have to. I don't know what they're going to do, but they have to do something or you're risking losing the faith of the various governing bodies that that you went out of your way to appease. So... I'll pay attention, see if I can figure out what happens when it does, and if I know, I'll let you guys know here, but... Um, as soon as I saw her say that, man, a lot of us just went, Oh, boy. Oh, boy, that's that's not going to go well. 
All right, that was the event. UFC 287. Uh, your bonuses, I mentioned fight of the night was Gastelum and Curtis. Well-deserved. Performances went to Adesanya and Rob Font. Not arguing with that. Um, Holland, you could go with... Look, you could have gone... Adesanya had one of those unlock as soon as it happened. Right, the stakes, the atmosphere, the reaction, like, he was getting one. The other one, you could go Font, you could go Holland, you could go, you could have gone Steve Garcia. That's less likely because, you know, prelims and the UFC's aversion to them, but you had a couple of, you had several solid choices for that one, and I'm not going to be upset about Rob Font getting this one. Uh, it's a worthy decision. So, that was the event. If you want my full report, it is in the MMAZona411mania.com. Thank you very, very much, as always. Give it a read if you're so inclined. Oh, man, I went on for a long time there. Yeah, we had stuff to talk about. I don't object to that. All right, let's move on. UFC on ESPN 44 will be coming your way this coming Saturday, the 15th. Should be a quick preview here, at least. Um, Main event, great fight. Max Holloway and Arnold Allen. My appreciation for Max Holloway is well documented at this point. Max Holloway is only 31 years old. On the flip side, he not only has 30 fights, all but, what, four of his fights are in the UFC? Yeah, he came into the UFC at 4-0. And he's had a lot of five-rounders. So there's 30 fights is tough. The number of rounds he's fought, um, I imagine, is pretty hefty. He's looked he's looked a little bit worn down lately. I mean, his last fight was that uh, the fight with Volkanovski, their third fight, and Volk turned in just a superb performance. So I'm not going to hold that one too much against him, but. He didn't look great when he fought Yair Rodriguez. Like He's taken some damage over the course of his career. And that might be catching up to him. We'll find out here. We'll get more definitive information one way or the other. Like He might still win this fight, but how he looks is going to be important. Um, Arnold Allen, about the same age, only 29. But Allen's on a really good winning streak. Never lost in the UFC. Uh, he had some activity issues a little bit. Because he debuted in 15, one fight, one fight in 16, one in 17, one in 18, one, uh, two in 19, one in 20, one in 21, then two in 22. So tried to be a bit more regular recently. I mean, he's got 10 fights in the UFC. He hasn't lost any of them. He is tied with Volkanovski, actually, for the longest winning streak in the division's history. Because, yeah, he debuted in the UFC at, uh, at featherweight. He's on a 12-fight overall winning streak. He's very good. Um, this is his first main event. No. Okay. His fight with Calvin Cater was a main event. It's unfortunate that one ended in the second round, eight seconds into it, when Cater had that uh, had a knee injury. Uh, really unfortunate because that was that was a good fight through one round. So not his first main event, but I think it's pretty safe to say this is not going to resemble what the Cater fight was uh, played out 
I don't pick against Max Holloway very often. I'm not going to here. With the caveat that I mentioned above. He's not just had a lot of fights. He's had a lot of rounds in a lot of fights. And he's been in some dog fights. And he's he is taking more and more damage over his last few fights than before. And that's usually a pretty bad sign. Like when, when you're... I forget who it was that had this statistic at one point. Might have been George. I think the statistic was that George St. Pierre... Between in the fight between his fights with um, like Condit, Diaz, and Hendricks, he took more strikes in those three fights than like the rest of his like the last like ten fights combined. Might even have been more than that. Like that's a bad trend when that starts happening. And that's the trend Holloway seems to be on. Now, some of that might just be one. Yair Rodriguez is really good. And so's Volkanovski. So we're talking about the two best guys in the division. Maybe it's just them. This will be the... This is kind of our big test here. If Arnold Allen is able to do similar things to Max that Yair or Volk were able to do, even if Holloway wins, that will be a bad sign. So, I'm still picking Holloway, but... I think his time is coming sooner rather than later, and it's going to be a sad day when he does, when he does retire, because that dude's an all-time great in the division. He has put on some tremendous fights. I'm not trying to eulogize his career already, but that's me saying to everybody, like, appreciate what we have left of this man, because that day is coming sooner rather than later. This might be Allen's coming out party, dude. If he beats Holloway... Give him a title shot. Like, whoever wins out of Yair and Volkanovski, Arnold Allen should be next if he can get by Max. Your co-main event is another very good fight, still at featherweight. Edson Barboza and Billy Quarantillo. Um, here's my thing about this. Barboza's good. He can win this fight. I'm Everything I'm about to say should not be taken as a he can't win this. Unfortunately for Barboza... He's not had the best run of late. He's 2-5 in his last seven. His wins are over Makwan Amir Khani and Shane Burgos. The Burgos fight was a war. He... Dude, is his record even worse if I go further back? It is. He's 3-7 and seven in his last ten. Oof. Um, the book on him is kind of written at this point. Like He's dangerous, you can't be reckless, but he doesn't like pressure. I expect Billy Quarantillo to drop the first round, but I think his pressure is going to get to Barboza eventually. I'm going with Billy Q. Should be a good fight, though. After that, things fall off a little bit. <clears throat> so this should come faster. Um, Dustin Jacoby will fight Azamat Mirzakhanov. Not the worst middle-of-the-road light heavyweight fight. Let me check Jacoby real fast. He's on a decent run, I think. He just had the... I thought he beat Khalil Roundtree. 
And he's coming off a loss, a split decision to Khalil Roundtree Jr. Again, I thought he won. Did I? I seem to recall that. I'd have to double check. I kind of say that a lot, don't I? Like, somebody loses a split decision, and I thought they won, and maybe I did, maybe I didn't, so. It was a close fight, if nothing else, so. I might have been okay with the split, like 29-28 either way. Um, Mirzakhanov has fought in the UFC before. Double check. He's undefeated. Um, 2-0 in the UFC. He beat Tafan Chukwi. That was an ugly fight. And he beat Devin Clark. Less ugly. Hmm. Um. That's a tough one, actually. Eh. Let me go with Jacoby. Why not? Um, might be very wrong about that one. Uh, let's see. Light heavyweight. Tanner Bowser dropping down to light heavyweight. Um. His first time down here? I believe it is. I mean, he was briefly there, like, several years ago, but... Um, first time since... Yeah, first time since 2014. That he's been at 205. Uh, he's 1-3 in, in his last four... The moves probably do. Like, he was just getting kind of squished at heavyweight. He's not a big guy. He's fighting Iwan Kutelava, who was on a three-fight losing streak. I'm going to pick Bozier here, but... Yeah, I'm going to pick Bozier. I, I, I don't really pick Kutelava at this point. Bantamweight. This is a good one, actually. Pedro Munoz and Chris Gutierrez. Um, Munoz in a rough spot, actually. He is one and four with one no contest in his last six. I mean, the losses are to Aljamain Sterling, champion. A split decision to Frankie Edgar that I thought he won. Beats Jimmy Rivera. Loses a decision to Jose Aldo, fairly. Loses a decision to Dominic Cruz, fairly. Has the no contest with Sean O'Malley. Um, I thought he was doing okay in that fight before the eye poke that rendered him unable to continue, so... Um, Gutierrez, by contrast, very, very heavy kicker. He lost his UFC debut when he fought Hani Barcelos. Tough draw for your UFC debut. Since then, he's got a draw with Cody Durden, but other than that, wins. Uh, his last couple against increasing opposition, Andre Ewell, Felipe Colores, Dana Batgardi, and then Frankie Edgar. Edgar's retirement fight. This uh, this is a pretty solid fight, actually. I think I'm going to lean towards Gutierrez. Munoz might have just slowed down a bit too much at this point. These two guys are going to kick the crap out of each other. And I mean, kick. Both guys, powerful kickers. I'm going to lean towards Gutierrez, but... Circle that one. That's a good fight. And kicking off the main card, why, oh why, Clay Guida and Rafa Garcia. I have disliked Clay Guida for a long time. A lot of people got... A lot of people decided they were no longer his fans after the fight with Gray Maynard in 2012. I got fed up with his shtick before that. Um, he's been in some very entertaining fights. I don't take that away from him, but the only entertaining fights he's been part of are ones where he loses. I thought Scott Holtzman... 
Did I think Scott Holtzman beat him? I might not have. Dude, Claudio Pulis knee-barred him. That was hilarious. He probably should have lost that Leonardo Santos fight, but the ref let that go in the first. Um, Garcia, by contrast, a bit up and down in the UFC. He's 3-3. Three and three. Um, God, do I pick Clay Guida? At the... Okay, here's the thing about Clay Guida. <clears throat> He's been fighting the same way for, like, a decade. Okay? More than that, like 12 years. If you can't deal with a guy whose MMA game is still built around theoretically fighting in the early 20-teens, that's a big failure on your part. So, I'm not going to pick Guida. I just don't at this point. He'll probably, you know, lay and pray his way to a decision because, of course, he will, but... Um, going with Garcia. On the prelims, Bill Algio and TJ Brown. Not a bad fight. Um, probably Algio. He had that tough fight with Feely last time out. You could have scored that for him. I don't think I did, but it was a split decision, and I wasn't mad about it. Brown. Again, a couple of guys back and forth. That's not a bad fight. Um... Flyweight, Brandon Royville and Mateus Nicolau. That should be on the main card. Take one of the stupid light heavyweight fights and throw it down there. Or Guida. Like just, this is a good fight. Flyweights get no respect. Um, Royville's rebounded nicely. He's on a two-fight winning streak. Had that tough fight with Brandon Moreno where his shoulder separated mid-fight and then ran into Alessandre Pantoja after that. But... He's rebound again. He's beat Joserio Bontarini and Matt Schnell. He's very good. Nicolau is very good. He only got one loss in the UFC. That's to Dustin Ortiz. He's on a what five, six fight winning streak. Six. It's a good fight. I'm thinking I'm gonna go with Nicolau, but really good fight. Uh, women's strawweight: Jillian Robertson and Piero Rodriguez. Rodriguez, excuse me. I believe she is Brazilian. Uh, she is not. She is Colombian. Colombian or is that Ecuador? Not Ecuador. Um, no, no, that's um, God. Many South, so many of those Central and South American countries have the same color scheme on their flags. I'm gonna have to cheat and look. Yes. Um. Oh, that's Venezuela. Yeah, yeah, Venezuela. Ugh. Similar flags. Similar color schemes. It's just yeah, flags design is the whole thing. Um, so, forget me. Piero Rodriguez, she is undefeated. Two wins in the UFC, not too bad. Beats Kay Hansen and Sam Hughes. Robertson's a, she's just kind of a tough out. Um, to step up for Rodriguez. I think I'm going to go with Robertson, but dude, Robertson's so up and down, who knows. Uh, lightweights, Lando Venata. Good for him, man. And Daniel Zellhuber. Uh, Zellhuber is 12-1. and one. I believe 1-1 in the UFC? 0-1. Oh yeah, Trey Ogden beat him. Another one of those contender series guys that just... Um, 
I like Lando Venata. Can I pick him? He got guillotined out of his shorts, actually, when he fought Charles Jordan. Yeah, I'll go with Venata. But if he's on the other side of it too far, then Zell Huber could win this. Uh, let's see. Strawweight, we have Bruna Brazil and Denise Gomez. Uh, both these women are Brazilians. One is 8-2-1. and one. This would be Brazil. Uh, making her debut. Three-fight winning streak. And Gomez is 6-2. and two. Uh, Lost her UFC debut to Loma Lukbunmi last year. I vaguely recall that. Probably go with Brazil here. Um, feels like the UFC kind of setting up someone who got a big win in the Contender Series a little bit. Uh, Bantamweight, we have Aaron Phillips and Gaston Bolanos. Bolanos, excuse me. There's an Enya over that end. Um, Phillips lost his UFC debut to Jack Shore. Rough draw, man. Thing is, that was a while ago. That was July of 2020. What the heck has kept him out? Wait, he's in his second stint with the UFC. Yeah. Oh, jeez. So his first time in the UFC, he went 0-2, losing to Sam Cecilia and Matt Hobart. That was 2014. He missed all of 16 and 17. A quick look at this. Uh, there was some... Uh, he's pulled out of some fights, man. He was supposed to fight Adrian Yanez uh, in October of 2020. That fell through after he had an injury. Um, he was supposed to fight both Cameron Else and Trevin Jones. He wound up pulling out of that. I mean, Else pulled out first, then he wound up pulling out. Then he was supposed to fight Chris Moutinho. Moutinho got pulled. Jonathan Martinez was supposed to fight him. Phillips withdrew from that fight, some kind of illness. Um, some bad luck, man. That's some real bad luck. Um, Bolaños is Peruvian. He is 6-3. and three. I believe this is his promotional debut. Indeed it is. Um, I'm probably... Jeez, that's tough. That's actually tough. Like, Bolaños being only nine fights into his career. Bolaños does a lot of work at featherweight, too, instead of bantamweight. I'm going to go with Phillips, but I don't feel very good about it. And then kicking everything off at women's bantamweight, Jocelyn Edwards and Lucia Pudilova. Um, Edwards, yeah, I kind of thought she lost that Kim fight. She beat Ramona Pasquale fair and square, though. Um, Pudilova, she's in her second stint with the UFC, if memory serves. Beat Wu Yanan, stopped her in the second round. Probably Edwards. Probably Edwards. Yeah, we'll go with that. And that is where we... That is where we are at the moment. So, Saturday, I will be covering that. It comes to all of us from the T-Mobile Center in Kansas City, Missouri. So, tune in for that. Saturday, MMAZona411mania.com. 
I appreciate it as always any support you're able to lend that. Let's move on to the news, shall we? So it's official. Endeavor, the parent company of the UFC, has put in a bid to buy the WWE, 51% of it at least. The plan being then to merge the UFC and WWE into a new company. I mentioned their stock calling uh, initialization or whatever will be TKO. Uh, again, it's a publicly traded thing. So the structure, the proposed structure of this would go as follows. Dana White would remain president of the UFC. Nick Khan would remain president of the WWE. There would be a board for the new company comprised of... Uh, Vince McMahon would chair the board. There would be, what was it, 11 members, five of them coming from WWE's corporate structure, six of them coming from Endeavor's. And then Artie Emanuel would be the president... Maybe president or CEO or something like that. Um, some other position. So he and Vince would be mostly on even terms, structurally wise. Um, Vince McMahon would have his own has his own separate employment contract for this. Here's what I think is going to happen. Assuming no major scandals involving Vince between now and then, and it would have to be major, because we're going to be into the realm of publicly traded stuff here, so that kind of matters. Now, the new company has not been formed yet. There's Again, there's still legal and procedural loopholes to get through. Or hoops to jump through rather than loopholes. Although, imagine there's some loophole exploiting too. Largely, this is a tax thing. Like, spinning this up the way they are, they can avoid paying taxes on part of it. And yeah, it's a thing. Business. It's a thing. Um... My hunch is, again, barring major controversy, Vince gets to chair the board for eight months to a year. And then he gets voted out. Because, for those of you who don't know how this works, the chairman of the board of directors is an elected position by the board itself. And it's usually determined only by a simple majority. Um, there were a lot of people who did not want Vince to come back. If you'll recall, Vince retired in the wake of some of the uh, scandal related to not only his behavior, but his payment of hush money. Uh, Vince was able to use his voting power to force his way back onto the board. Several members resigned, actually, over this. Um, also, Stephanie McMahon resigned largely over this. And... It's the thought process was the sale was kind of in the works. He wanted to be there. He wanted to make sure that you know, how things played out. He has secured his involvement with this for at least a little bit. Again, he has his own employment contract. Not that he couldn't be fired, but it gives him a little bit of security. Again, my hunch is he gets to chair the board of this new company for about a year. And then he will be voted out. He's... Vince is just not the guy you want in this position. I feel like they gave him this to make sure the deal happened. And he'll get to do his thing for a bit, but I... 
I do not think he will spend a tremendous amount of extra time in that in that position. You just you're not going to replace your chairman like in whatever role he happens to occupy. It's not just chairman. There's some other title that's attached to it. So forgive me. But the long and the short of that is he can be removed from the position on the board by being voted out. And I imagine that will happen. You don't want to do it too soon. That can shake investor confidence, and you really don't want that. But give it a year. Let everything operate. Then he gets voted out, and somebody gets in his place who is a bit more investor-friendly. My hunch. All of this assuming that there's no other second-order major scandal related to Vince or that there's no health complications for Vince. So. I don't expect this to have a great deal of effect on the w, on the UFC. The UFC is a very profitable entity for the w, for Endeavor. They want it to stay that way. Here's the thing, the other thing, and this is for the WWE guys out there. The WWE generated in revenue about $100,000 or so more than the UFC in 2022. Both were over a billion dollars in revenue generated. That's not a billion dollars in profit. Know the difference. Important difference. But they both generated a billion dollars plus in revenue. The WWE may have drawn, may have generated a bit more. The UFC was more profitable. That's the metric that Endeavor is going to look at. Endeavor, Endeavor still has a significant debt load they're paying off. But the combined might of the UFC and the WWE under one umbrella... The valuation of that is something like $21 billion. Like, they, when they put forth what they're thinking about for this, they listed the valuation. The UFC's valuation is like $12 billion. It's tripled in value since they, since Endeavor bought it. Fighter pay has not tripled, you'll notice. But the UFC has become vastly more profitable. Uh, and the UFC, I think, again, they valued it at like $9 billion, which is fair. Like, these are big enterprises. Combined, yeah, you've got a juggernaut of... You've got this total juggernaut of both television rights and fees worldwide, live event gate vent, live event stuff worldwide, depending on where they want to go. Like, it's... It's enormous. Like, it's huge. But my warning to the WWE guys, Endeavor's going to look for the WWE to become as profitable as the UFC. You're not really likely to grow the percentage difference. There's probably going to be cuts. Now, that might be talent. I imagine there will be talent that's cut. It will probably be a chunk of office personnel corporate side of things there's always a lot of layoffs when corporate mergers happen a lot like because when you blend two companies together like you just again we're not quite going to get the same blending here between the ufc and wwe but endeavors personnel are coming over and there's just redundancies when you blend these things that mean people get fired that's just how it goes and so I imagine there'll be some of that. I'm not happy. I'm, like, I'm not wishing ill on anyone over there. So, But I imagine there's going to be some cuts and some 
different purse strings tightening in the WWE to bring their profitability in line with what the UFC brings in. This is also a pretty big deal because if you've got one company in charge of these two entities, your bargaining power for television rights and fees is it's hard to state how big it is. If you come to the table and say, I can give you UFC events pretty much every Saturday. I can give you, at the moment, Raw and SmackDown are on different networks. But, because um, Comcast, uh, NBC Universal slash Comcast, seems more or less happy with Raw. I'm not as sure Fox is happy with SmackDown. But Fox has had good success with the UFC stuff. Or, again, it might... You know, ESPN is kind of the home of the UFC at the moment. Just the the market force you can exert, the force you can exert on the market, rather, in some respects. If you say, I can... This company represents a legitimate sporting entity that runs, again, pretty much weekly. Uh, the biggest name in professional wrestling, which has a consistent audience on Mondays and Fridays, and pay-per-views. Oh, by the way, I, I mentioned this last week. Um, at the, This is not going to happen right away, but the deal with Peacock, where Peacock gives you all the pay-per-views, slash, they call them premium live events, the deal where those are just free with your Peacock subscription, that will not last. They might see out the the deal they have with uh, NBC, with NBC Universal at the moment, or Comcast Universal. They might see that deal through, but you better believe in the near future, it's going to be whatever their streaming home is. You've got your monthly subscription, and then for the big pay-per-views you're going to be paying. I would almost guarantee that's something they're going to do. Unless, the exception to that is if the deal from Comcast slash Universal slash NBC, whatever, if the deal that they offer to keep the WWE stuff on Peacock is big enough, they might not do that. But even Peacock like would have to be looking at that and going, so we get a chunk of this if we make them pay. People are still buying UFC pay-per-views, and that's 80 bucks in addition to your $5 a month subscription, or it's more than 5 at the moment, but whatever. That's probably coming, so be aware. If you want my personal opinion on this, I think no good will come of it. Just my hunch. But yeah, that became official. That's the direction things are going. Yay. Keep an eye on it, as always. And yeah. Alright, uh, moving on. So UFC 289 as a main event. It will be the trilogy fight between Amanda Nunes and Juliana Pena, speaking of immediate rematches that no one wants. Ugh. This will be three in a row for these two. Because Nunes lost to Pena, got an immediate rematch. Now Pena's... Nunes have a... I don't think Nunes had a fight. 
going to double check, but I'm 90% sure. I just don't want to be. Yeah, three in a row. Look, we everybody used to dunk on Demetrius Johnson for not having great pay-per-view numbers. There's that clip where Dana White goes, you get the lowest selling history, pay-per-view in the history of the UFC. That has not been true for a while. Nunes has been a flop in terms of selling pay-per-views. Main eventing a pay-per-view with that? Uh, phew, good luck. Um, you know, if Pena learns to fight Southpaw and can jab out of that stance, she might be able to do it. Uh, Dude, their second fight was almost a joke. Like, Nunez beat her badly. Didn't I have, the, I had like 50-43, I think. You have her two 10-8 rounds. Why are we doing this? I know why we're doing this, because the division sucks. Well, who's, a, who's getting, like, apart from the fans getting screwed, what fighter is getting screwed here? You can't name me another top bantamweight on the women's side of things who's getting passed over so we get a trilogy fight between Nunes and Pena. That fighter does not exist at the moment. The only one close might be Irene Aldana. She's got a fight coming up, so, you know, bleh. Um, Not looking forward to that one. Uh, another fight news. UFC on ESP, excuse me, UFC on ABC4 has taken shape. And, uh, oi. And let's go over this real fast. Your main event is Jarzinho Rosenstruck and Jailton Almeida. <clears throat> Not great. I'm happy for Almeida to get the main event spot because he dude looks like a player at heavyweight, but Rosenstruck in a main event is just never a good time. Um, Co-main event will be at light heavyweight because screw the viewers. Anthony Smith and Johnny Walker. Like I don't have anything against Anthony Smith. He's a good talking head. No minor note about UFC 287. Dustin Poirier debuted on the analyst desk. He was one of the talking heads. He was alongside Dean Thomas. Poirier did a good job. Real good job from Poirier there. Um, but, you know, Smith is, he's been around forever. He's coming off that loss to Magomed on Kalaev. That was rough. Um, Walker is... Walker. What do you want me to say? Um, well, like, the best fight on this card is either Daniel Rodriguez and Ian Gary... Or Cody Stamen and Douglas Silva de Andrade. Um, Brian Battle and Gabe Green might be fun. Matt Brown, Matt Brown and Court McGee is just two old war horses that are going to slam into each other. That'll be fun. Um, it's not a great card. Um, I don't know why they're putting this on ABC. They're trying to make Jailton Almeida a big deal, and fair enough, dude looks legit. But that's. That feels like it's going to be a rough card. Oh, God, there's another light heavyweight fight on that card. Carlos Ulborg and Ijo Potierria. It's a rough card. That's all I'm saying. It's going to be a rough one. Uh, all right, last bit of news I have here, then I will check Twitter, is uh, the UFC did some roster cutting over the last little bit. 
Uh, the following fighters were cut. Steven Peterson, who retired. Guido Canetti, who is over 40. Kind of sucks for him. He's, you know, uh, Leomana Martinez, that kind of sucks. Mana Boy was usually good for a fight. Um, Rafael Alves, this one's mind-boggling to me. Like, he's been nothing but exciting. I don't know why they cut him. Leonardo Santos, probably fair. Dude's been around forever, but has a wildly inconsistent fight schedule. And Augusto Sakai, who you kept around for like a five-fight losing streak and cut him after he wins? Okay. Um, just, again, some of those make sense, some of them, I mean, yeah, I don't know. But, the UFC does have to clean the roster periodically, so what are you going to do? It's a brutal game. Just is. Alright, that's all I have listed, been going at this for two hours, good times. Let me check Twitter, if nothing new is broken in the MMA sphere, we will do plugs and get out of here. Alright, no, I'm not seeing anything, Sue. Plugs. The usual spate of professional wrestling coverage over at 411mania.com is AW's Dark Elevation on Monday, WWE SmackDown on Friday, uh, and then, of course, the UFC event on Saturday. In my other endeavors, this Tuesday... Tuesday? It's a Monday one. I must check. Um, yeah, this Tuesday on Damn You Hollywood, myself, Mark Radulich, Alexis Haina... And Zachary Strobel will be reviewing Illuminations, the Super Mario Brothers movie. Um, The audience score is good. The critical score is meh. It's meh. So, be on the lookout for that. Um, Yeah, Saturday, er, Saturday, sorry, thinking about something else. Tuesday. 7 p.m. Eastern, uh, sorry, 7 p.m. my time, 9 p.m. Eastern. We will be on Damn You Hollywood talking about the Super Mario Brothers movie, the good, the bad, the otherwise, so tune in for that if you're interested in my thoughts on stuff and stuff beyond the realm of mixed martial arts. So we will be back next week, same time, same channel. We will review UFC on ESPN 44, and we will preview UFC on ESPN plus 80. How does that look? Main event, Sergei Pavlovich and Curtis Blades. It's a relevant heavyweight fight. Song Yudong and Ricky Simone, that's not bad. Bobby Green and Jared Gordon could be fun. Uh, this is feeling middle of the road. Yeah, uh, again, full preview next week. I don't see anything too terrible. But nothing, again, not much really jumping off the page like, yes, so... Full preview next week. We'll see what happens between now and then. Until then, thank you as always for listening. I deeply appreciate all of you guys. Stay safe out there and continue to be well, be safe, and behave.